What a great week it has been for Jujutsu Kaisen fans. Especially us Maki fans, it has been made clear now that Maki equals Toji. They're on the same level. If you have been on my TikTok account, you know how many comments I've gotten from people saying that Maki can't be as strong as Toji, that she isn't as strong as Toji, maybe give it a couple years, blah, blah, blah. No, same level. But you know, we'll, we'll get into that. And of course, we have the JJK movie. I was lucky enough to be able to see it in theaters, but now everyone can stream it online on Crunchyroll. Now I can rewatch all of the heartbreaking scenes in HD at my leisure. So I'm going to talk a bit about the movie as well today, along with the news that we just got this morning about how season two is going to go down. But thank you and welcome for tuning into a new episode of Serena in 2D, where we look deeply into our favorite anime and manga. Let's get started with the news. So now we know for sure that the Shibuya arc is going to be a part of season two. And if you haven't looked at the new promo art, oh my gosh, please take a look at it. Because before, a few days ago, we got just the one half of the artwork that was representing the hidden inventory arc. And I remember when we first got it, the composition felt a bit constricted, right? Like it, it felt a bit odd. You could see that Ghetto is like going off screen, like we should see more to the right, right? And now, today, we see the other half of the image, and it's the Shibuya arc image, and oh my, it's stunning. I love the different colors, I love that we can still see that sort of lens effect, like someone is recording them, like what's going on with that? And oh my gosh, again, how we have the characters sitting and standing and leaving, and who's sitting and who's standing, really heartbreaking. In the first image for Hidden Inventory, you can see Rico in the back, and she is departing, she's getting off the train, and of course, in the foreground, we can see ghetto as he is getting up and leaving as well and gojo is waving good waving goodbye to him along with shoko and so you can take that as ghetto leaving the jujutsu world and of course it can also be foreshadowing his inevitable death later on and then in the new image we see how nobara is standing and leaning up against the door almost like she could leave if she wanted to but we don't know she's going to and that i think represents how nobara is in this kind of unknown condition. We don't know if she's going to live or die. I mean, come on, guys. We know that she's going to live. Uh, I don't think that Akutami is just going to have her die off screen and just like, oh, yeah, she died. If she does die, it'll be some point later on. Again, right now we're at chapter 198. So we have not seen Nobra in a very long time. She has not been in the Culling Games arc at all so far. And then, oh my gosh, the way they have... Gojo being the one getting up and leaving the train, of course, that could represent how he's going to be or how he has been cubed, <laughs> how he's locked away, he's been separated from them, so he's left in a sense, but it also, he has, it makes it look like he's walking towards Ghetto, because of course, they're just, they're just kind of bound to each other, and I've talked about that a bunch, and you know, I'm going to talk about it again, because I'm going to go over the movie later on, but this was such a clever reveal, I love how they did one half for one half of the season and one half image for the other half and just like blending the two together and they both feel uncomfortable and spooky but also very lovely at the same time and oh yeah and of course I forgot to mention how Itadori is and Megami are the only two sitting because they're the only ones who are for sure continuing forward they're both okay so far so far in the story and they're continuing on the mission they're they're continuing to live for sure but this was such a great little surprise, and I was hoping for a trailer. A lot of us were hoping for 
at least like a like a quick little PV, you know, just a little something, a teaser, anything, but we didn't get that today. So I am thinking that Jump Festa, which is December 17th to the 18th, will have a full trailer and hopefully we'll get more voice actor reveals and character design reveals as well, because I know a lot of people were staying up uh, or I guess woke up really early for uh, for us in America um, and we're just waiting and waiting for that Toji reveal. TikTok has been waiting for Toji. <laughs> he's he has to be like the most like if if you at least if you pull like the western fans it's like who's the sexiest character in jujutsu kaisen i i told you gonna have to win now let's move on to the next bit of exciting news maki toji equal it's over you're done if you thought that you come up with any reason why maki is not on the same level as toji you need to stay quiet and the funny the funny thing is slash sad sort of thing is I see people still trying to power scale Toji and like come up with situations where he would survive something or who he could beat blah blah blah. I'm like he's dead he is dead and that's something that the author wants us to focus on as well Akutomi wants us to know that this man is dead and gone buried or not buried I don't know what happened to his body um he's gone and Maki is the new god of war and unfortunately Viz doesn't include those little bits of uh, extra lines that are sometimes throughout the manga, usually at the end. But in the fan translations, Maki is called the new god of war. The old god is dead. It's over. We have a new reign. That's the whole point of Jujutsu Kaisen, of this crop of new young people who are going to change the Jujutsu world in the way that their predecessors weren't able to. Akutami does not want you clinging to dead gods, to people who were heavily flawed and weren't able to make the changes that needed to be made. And of course, besides Maki just being amazing and us knowing for sure now that she is on the same level as Toji, let's talk about the chapter as a whole because it was just a really nice chapter. So we start off with Naoya and he's in this interesting pose. I don't know what the hand symbol means that he's making, but we see this giant eyeball behind him. And in the Viz translation, it says, Domain Expansion, Time Cell Moon Palace. But in fan translations, it's Temporal Womb, Moon Palace. It's a bit of a shame that the Viz translation doesn't keep womb in there because when we turn the page, we see that his, part of his domain, of course, it looks very similar to Gojo's, but we see this giant uh, uterine shape, very uterus-like, with fallopian tubes and ovaries. Like, we need to take a second to recognize that the biggest misogynist in Jujutsu Kaisen has a giant womb, uterus, female rep reproductive system going on as his domain expansion. I think it can represent and reflect a couple of things. Naoya objectified Maki. He would talk about her body and her twin sister Mai's body as well. And so he has this sort of fixation on their bodies and on appearances in general. There could be something about Naoya that was always a bit jealous of women. And maybe that's why he was so hateful towards them and would bring up uh, how a woman should stand, uh, stay three steps behind a man at all time, blah, 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 all those sexist things out of nowhere. I think there's this resentment and almost kind of jealousy as well. But who knows? I just do feel like it's very interesting. Also, uh, the sort of fleshy bridge that they're standing on looks a bit phallic. So maybe this is a, just a whole reproductive... Uh, coital sort of situation and also again let's talk about how it looks like gojo domain expansion so with naoya 
he wanted to be like Gojo and Toji. He felt like he could stand on the same level as them. And so he felt like it was insulting that Maki even dare believe that she's similar to Toji. And that's not even like her believing that. It's just that everyone could see Toji in her. And he was such a denier of her strength that he felt threatened just by her obviously emulating Toji, this man that he's looked up to uh, so much since he was a small child. So he believes that he's supposed to be standing among them. He's got this bootleg domain, tries so hard to emulate Gojo, but he can't do it where it matters. He can't emulate any of Gojo's positive traits, not really. And if we go back to the last chapter, even like when he was spring forth, like his hands coming out of the carapace body, that was supposed to look similar to uh, the Shibuya arc chapter where Toji was coming through um, that hole that Megami created. So he gets his parallels to those characters that are far better than him that he'll never be able to reach. And here's Maki, who's actually reaching them where it matters. The scene where Maki is floating, where she's figuring out that she can see things that other people can't see, that she's like grabbing onto the air and able to like maneuver herself around. It looks reminiscent to Gojo during the hidden inventory arc where he's floating upside down and realizing just how incredibly strong he is and he's fully tapped in and he's able to heal himself and everything. And then of course there's just a million moments where Maki is like Toji and everyone can see it except for Naoya. Alright so let's go to page nine right? We have that scene where Dido's hands are sliced off and the blade goes flying towards our girl Maki and she's able to grab it and stab Naoya through the back. And then we get to see Mai again. I did not think we are going to see her again, but it was so nice to see her. And how we go from Maki holding the sword to her holding her sister's hand because her sister's spirit, we now know for sure, is inside the blade. Even if it's not her whole spirit, I think that at least some of her is still in there. So we're back on the same beach we were on where Maki and Mai departed. Do you get it now? About me. Even if I had to be wielded by some sweaty, stinky old man, I wanted to show it to you. You really were able to destroy it all. Behind Mai, we can see two flocks of geese instead of one, showing how they're both free now. This was such a clever panel, and just this page overall was really beautiful. And I am using an unofficial translation for this one because, unfortunately, I feel like a lot of nuance is lost in the official translation. Maki and Mai's relationship is often overlooked, and while I think that it could have been handled a bit better in the story, I think... There is a great foundation there. How they were always connected to each other. How Maki wanted to create a world that Mai could be comfortable in. How her wanting to take over the Zainan clan, as she claimed, was so that she could make it a place where her sister could belong. And then Mai, she was not truly interested in becoming a Jujutsu sorcerer. She wanted to become closer to Maki. And so even now that Mai is dead, in a way she's able to be with Maki through the sword that she created using the last amounts of her energy. And I love that the sword that Maki wields is a copy of the one that Toji wielded and is called Cursed Tool Soul Liberation Blade. Both of Maki and Mai's souls are now liberated. And we know that it cuts the soul directly. So there's not a lot of people who are able to uh, injure souls directly in this series. So now we know that this blade can do that, which is, I think that's gonna come up later. And what Mai was talking about when she's talking about being wielded by Dido and how she uh, seemingly chose to be wielded by him earlier, like she flew out of 
Maki's hand in order to be wielded by Dido in order to show Maki where she was lacking. Remember, that's a big part of Maki's journey. She's been learning from Dido, from Mio, and she was inspired by Toji to be able to see things that she wasn't able to see before, to be able to cut through things that she wasn't able to cut through before. And so I love that all of these people have acted as Maki's teacher because unfortunately Gojo was not the best teacher for her. Again, I'm going to have to go back to the fan translation because I like how they put it better. Uh, when describing the blade, they say, the wielder must have a pair of eyes that can see the souls of inanimate objects. So it makes sense that Mai gravitated towards him. Literally gravitated towards Dido because he's able to see the souls of blades. He's able to, to see the soul of a katana. And Maki can see the soul of her sister. So it's not just her energy that's in the blade. We know that some of her soul is in there as well. Next, we get the big moment of Maki slicing through Naoya. So she stabs him through the back, just like her mother did. JJK loves its parallels. Akutami relies on them so much and uses them fantastically. And now one of my favorite parallels is this final page in chapter 198 of Maki marching forward with our text boxes saying, 12 years after his death, another fierce human on par with Zane and Toji has been fully realized. In the little bit of subscript, we get the God of War reborn. This on its own is so epic, so beautiful, so energetic and clear cut. Again, making it so clear, undeniably clear that Maki has the same power as Toji. She's just as strong as Toji. But when I looked at this image, I couldn't help but feel like it looked a bit familiar. And so when I was looking through some of my saved images, I realized what it was. It's a parallel to the scene where young Naoya has run up to see Toji. This is in chapter 151 on page 2. Akutami handles writing female characters in such a fascinating way, in a way that I haven't seen done before, where we have these parallels between her and not just some guy, not just some man, but one of the most hyper-masculinized characters in the series. Big, buff, brutal Toji. But I love the differences between herself and Toji. She isn't just a Toji clone, and we can see this in a lot of ways, but also in how she composes herself. Her demeanor is much calmer, more composed when she fights than Toji's. Toji seems to be a bit more cocky, very uh, almost animalistic, furious almost. But Maki is deliberate. And what I love about this fight that we see in this chapter is that it's barely, it's barely a fight. It doesn't really feel like Maki is acknowledging Naya that much. In fact, it's like she's becoming more in tune with herself. She's thinking about her sister, she's talking to her sister, and she's finally doing away with Naoya like he's some pest. Even when we look at the parallels between those two images, it looks similar, but there are some key differences. Maki looks more hopeful. She walks with a bit of a straighter back. Toji is more slumped over. He looks more uh, like, a, like a beast almost. He's someone who's still burdened with the weight of the hatred of his family. I don't think he ever fully evolved out of that. But Maki has. She's migrated away from it. She's completely liberated, just like her sister. Let's talk about how Maki isn't really a Mary Sue, which I've heard being thrown around all the time, especially after this latest chapter. 
It's almost baffling to me that people can read through Maki's characters, get to the this latest chapter, see how far she's come, see how strong she is, and then call her a mid. Say that she's a Mary Sue and call her the writer's pet. These are all real things I've read online. Now let me go over what a Mary Sue is in case you didn't already know. A Mary Sue is usually a hyper-capable, a usually overpowered female character who has little to no flaws. So think like a self-insert fanfiction character or a YA novel about this girl with all the gifts and seemingly very few drawbacks to her immense abilities. If you can't already tell, there's a bit of misogyny in this term just, just off the bat. Because if you think about it, that's how a lot of male characters have been handled in fiction for the longest time. And while there is a male counterpart to the Mary Sue, the Gary Sue, that's like a spin-off. It, it, it's like a reverse Miss Mister. It's something that was made after the female version was made and hardly anyone ever uses that term. So it's inherently feminine. And so when people look at Maki, who is so strong, so talented, and has been through so much, they want to call her a Mary Sue. But they haven't called any of the male characters Gary Sues. They don't say that Yuta, the boy with all the gifts, a demon girlfriend who can show up and help him out, uh, who can copy anyone's jujutsu ability, who learned cursed speech in less than a few months, which takes usually other people years to master. He also became an expert swordsman within less than a year. Then let's go to Itadori, who was able to master the Black Flash after a couple of minutes with Toto. Black Flashes have not been achieved by many sorcerers. Usually we're looking at the grade 1 and special grade sorcerers when we're looking at people who have experienced a Black Flash. And off the bat, Itadori was able to control his cursed energy really well, quickly, and that was something that Gojo was able to acknowledge. He was like, wow, that was quick. The characters, especially the the young Jujutsu sorcerer characters, are elevated. A lot of them are prodigies. And this is something that Gojo acknowledges when talking to Principal Gakuganji, trying to tell him that these new crop of students will not be limited to special grade. They're going to go above and beyond. Plus, Akutami doesn't like training arcs. Th that's been made apparent. <laughs> While I haven't heard them say anything about that in an interview, we you don't get training arcs in Jujutsu Kaisen. You get maybe a chapter or two, a couple of pages with some eccentric person that helps you realize how strong you are, or you get thrown into some uh, situation where you cannot survive and you tap into your inner strength and pull out some kind of super technique that you didn't have before. It really boils down to misogyny. When people see powerful female characters, especially if they're being compared to a powerful hyper-masculine man like Toji, they feel threatened. And they feel like the woman hasn't earned it. And that's the funniest thing when it comes to Maki, talking about like she hasn't gone through what Toji's gone through. She literally has gone through a lot of things that Toji's gone through. And then some. Maki has had to deal with sexism. She grew up in a sexist household, and she went into the Jujutsu sorcery world, which is sexist. That's something that Momo talks about and makes clear to us. And now that it's been made clear that Maki is on the same level as Toji, a lot of Maki haters 
have had to realize that they're a lot like Naoya. So let's talk about where the series might go from here. So Maki gets this massive, uh, not so much that she gets a massive power up, it's just that she's more in tune with herself and so she's able to utilize her powers in better ways. But so she's just a stronger version of herself, right? And I expect to see some other characters get some boosts as well. And that will be really interesting to see because I'm sure we're gearing up for some big boss battles. And now it seems like Akutami wants us to know that being able to injure the soul is still going to be important, even though Mahito isn't here. Itadori was able to deal immense damage to the soul through his physical brutality, through his punches and kicks. With Nobra, it was through her different uh, techniques, her straw doll technique and also her nails. And now with Maki, she can cut the soul directly, no matter how hard or dense the physical being is. Because we get that little text box that says, it ignores the hardness of everything and cuts the soul directly. That is really cool and I'm sure that'll come up later. So again, we've got these three characters that can injure the soul. And we have two characters that have two souls inside of them. One being Itadori, with of course Sukuna inside of him. And with Kenjaku, there's still a bit of Ghetto inside of him. So I think this might come up later. If they want to damage Sukuna and not damage Itadori as much, I think maybe someone is able to do some damage. I don't think that uh, Maki nor Nobra are going to get the final kills of Kenjaku or Sukuna slash Itadori. Yikes. Uh, <laughs> I think they're going to help. I think they're going to help. I can definitely see Nobra's nails, especially since they're so projectile. She can use it from a distance, being able to maybe even pin someone down or weaken them. But what a great chapter. I think it was one of the better chapters that we've seen come from the Cullen Games arc. So let's talk about the movie. I loved this movie when I was able to go see it in theaters. The discussions around it were great. Of course, I made a million TikToks. And actually, it was the movie coming out that really boosted my TikTok account. I uh, started making videos, like really focusing on making videos on a daily basis. We were excited over here in the U.S., to get the movie and so certain one of my videos like started taking off once people were going to see the movie and got really excited about it and that brought a lot of followers onto my account so the movie holds a special place in my heart for multiple reasons i think that the highlights were the voice acting from uh from ghetto's character specifically i think it's takahiro sakurai let me, let me look that up all right i came back from google yes it is takahiro sakurai he did a fantastic job a heart-wrenching job and those final lines and then even before that he was just so flamboyant <laughs> like we need from our villain ghetto who's so flamboyant but man the pain the 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 vulnerability and i think it's that contrast from seeing him go from like this almost cartoonish sort of villain to this defeated man who always wanted a connection to gojo and I felt like that connection had been severed when it had never left. It had never been severed. They both always wanted to connect with one another. So I'm sure you remember the scene where Gojo was talking to Ghetto in that alleyway. And he says something to Ghetto and we don't know what he's saying. Those lines have been written out somewhere. They're actually in the script for Gojo and Ghetto's actors. And the rest of the crew doesn't know it. And of course, the public doesn't know, but they know. So it's them and only a select few other people, staff members, 
that know what was said uh, from Gojo to Ghetto in those final moments. And that just steams my buns. I need to know. <laughs> I need to know. But you know what? The thing is, I have a hypothesis, right? That we're going to hear Ghetto say those words back to Gojo at some point. Gojo and Ghetto tend to mirror each other. So usually it's, uh, I think, Ghetto usually starts doing something and then Get Gojo is going to do it later on. And I love that we see that kind of repetition, that cycle going on with their characters. And so if Gojo does something, then I think we're going to see Ghetto do it later on. Of course, if you're coming from my TikTok account, you've probably heard me talk at length about this. But just in some of the ways that they've mirrored each other, reflected each other, uh, repeated each other, we have Ghetto starting off with caring about the non-sorcerers, feeling like he should protect them. And Gojo feeling like they shouldn't have to protect people that are weaker than them. And then we see those stances flip later on. Ghetto ends up taking care of two young girls. And then later we see that Gojo becomes a bit of a benefactor for both Megumi and his sister Sumiki. Ghetto becomes a leader of a cult. And then Gojo becomes a leader another way. He becomes a teacher. Gojo quotes the Buddha during his fight with Toji. And then Ghetto starts to wear Buddhist monk robes. Gojo ingests lots of sweets. He loves sugar. He loves candy and desserts. And Ghetto is forced to ingest highly bitter things. So we have sweet and bitter, light and dark, positive and negative, all the time being played up with their characters. And let's circle back around to that new artwork that we got. And oh my gosh, the way that they make it look like Ghetto is walking towards Gojo and Gojo is walking towards Ghetto and how their two scenes are mirrored or not perfectly mirrored, but you know, very close. It's so beautiful, guys. And it just reinforces that idea of how they reflect each other and echo each other and repeat each other. I, I love it. And I know I've got some Satosugu deniers, some Satosugu haters. You know, if you don't know, Satosugu is the shipping name for Gojo and Ghetto. No, I, got, I know there's probably some of y'all in here. Not many, I hope. <laughs> listening and you're like oh here she goes here she goes again talking about two guys in love with each other me 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 let me tell you this the director has said that this movie is about love about the love between yuta and rika and the love between gojo and ghetto and it is a-okay to take a completely platonic look at that but when we look at their stories when we look at yuta and rika versus gojo and ghetto there's a continued theme of struggling to let someone go. And Yuta and Rika's relationship is undeniably romantically coded, even though we get into some uncomfortable stuff with their age difference. At the very least, we know that it is about a soul bond, a soul connection, and being afraid of letting someone go and being tied to them in a in a truly intimate way. I mean, it's it's Gojo who tells Yuta that love is the strongest curse of all. And this is because he knows that. He's experienced love that was a curse. And we can circle back to the director again, who who said that in both instances with Yuta, Rika, Gojo, Ghetto, they both experienced love that became a curse, where love could have made them stronger, but hurt them instead. And, of course, this pain comes from attachment. And that is something that Gojo is still struggling with. I want you guys to really think about the fact that Gojo allowed Ghetto to walk the face of the earth for around a decade 
after saying that he was planning on killing every non-sorcerer. He let this massive threat walk free. And when Yaga-sensei confronted Gojo about this, why didn't you kill him? Why didn't you do anything? Gojo says, do I have to say it? Yaga is like, oh, uh, yeah, you're right. Sorry, I shouldn't have asked. Yaga knows how much love was going on between Gojo and Ghetto. And he understands why Gojo would not be the one to take him down, at least in that instance. If you watched Volume Zero from... And if you look at Gojo's performance throughout this movie, and just like how he, he moves his mannerisms, and you see this in even in the manga, in Volume Zero manga, he's so stoic. He's so reserved. When it comes to anything involving Ghetto, he doesn't seem to even know what to do or say. I mean, you'd think we'd get some huge emotions out of this guy. He spent the best years of his life with Ghetto, and yet he barely emotes when he's around him. And I believe that this is because he knows what he has to do, but he doesn't want to do it. He knows the time has finally come for him to take down Ghetto, something that he's put off for over a decade. And so when we get to the alleyway, we see how Gojo was barely even able to approach him. Gojo stays in the light, all right? And this is one of the best things about the movie. I feel like the movie tells the Volume Zero story better than Volume Zero does. But anyway, we have Gojo still in the light, and then we see that Ghetto is in the darkness. He's ensconced in this uh, dark alleyway. Gojo kneels down in front of him, which he doesn't do in the manga. He kneels down and says whatever last words to Ghetto whatever tender words that he needed to say, maybe words that he's held on to for a decade or more. And he's able to get a smile out of Ghetto before having to take his life. Easily the highlight of the movie. Above all of the bombastic fight scenes or any of the beautiful scenery, musical moments, this took the cake. And so people who have not read through the manga, who haven't gotten to the Shibuya arc, will be met with an interesting surprise. That Gojo was not able to get rid of Ghetto's body, at least not in the appropriate way. Because Gojo, yet again, failed to do what needed to be done in regards to Ghetto, something awful happened. Kenjaku was able to take over his body. This is something that Kenjaku mocks him for. And if we're talking Sato Suku, Kenjaku knows all about it, okay? Half the reason why Kenjaku wanted Ghetto's body is because he knew that just the mere sight of it would cause the strongest sorcerer, Gojo Satoru, to freeze in place long enough for him to seal him up. This felt like such a such a Jujutsu Kaisen week. You know, sometimes when we're watching or reading a series, there'll be all sorts of events surrounding it, and so there's a lot of fanfare and excitement. This week felt really exciting and fun, and so I enjoyed making a lot of content. I've been tweeting, I've been, of course, making my TikToks, and now I'm making a podcast about all this exciting new news and just new visuals. I loved it, and we have so much to look forward to in 2023. We're going to be bawling our eyes out at the new season because, man, that's the highlight to me. Like, I, I didn't care much for Jujutsu Kaisen until we got to the hidden inventory part, right? Then I fell in love. Then I fell in love with the series. So all of the stuff that made me love Jujutsu Kaisen is going to show up next year, 2023, and I cannot wait. 
Thank you so much for tuning in till the end. And please make sure to rate this episode if you are given any sort of prompt to do so. If you enjoyed it, please let me know. Or you can hit me up on Twitter. You can hit me up on TikTok. Send me a message. Love to hear back from you. And I hope that you have a great rest of your week and look forward to more episodes.